Sanford podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. God is good and all the time. And I just want to say thank you for being here this morning. And if this is your first time, wow, we're just honored to have you in worship with us this morning. And hopefully we're going to get the lights on here so I'm not completely in the dark. Over there I was sitting and my, my iPad completely froze. There is probably no greater fear. I've had probably more nightmares about this particular one thing than nothing else in my life. So we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And I'm going to pray that while I'm praying that God will get this thing working. If not, it's going to be a very fun sermon. So let's, would you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, we thank you for technology and we thank you for when it works and we trust you when it doesn't work. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in such a way, God, uh, that you would help us to just trust you in a greater way. Father, we pray that you would just help us today to learn more about you, to find what you want us to know as we think about the next generation, as we think about all that you have. Lord, we thank you for just all your faithfulness. Now, God, we want to pray for our unreached, unengaged people groups around the world. And specifically, Lord, we want to continue to remember the Lebanese people. We want to pray, God, for the Christians that are there on the front line sharing the gospel. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move among those uh, believers that are there sharing the good news of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. All right, I got it to work. Praise God. <laughs> amen. Well, hey, if you're watching online, we are completely authentic here. We're not a perfect church. Matter of fact, if any of you are here were looking for a perfect church, I don't know of one. And if you find one, don't go because you'll ruin it. I thought that was a great joke, but apparently not a very good one. Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2 is where we're going to begin this morning. Uh, in October of 2009, the very first time I preached here, uh, when I was even, wasn't even the pastor here, I was just some visiting preacher. Uh, I preached out of Judges chapter 2. So over 10 years ago, uh, I preached from this passage, and this morning God has put a burden on my heart. As a matter of fact, I was a 25-year-old young man then, and um, the burden that I have now over the passage we're going to read is stronger now than it's ever been before. As a matter of fact, I want you to understand that we are in a generational crisis. We are in a generational crossroads in our nation and in our world. Secularization and radical individualism and consumerism have eroded the spiritual fabric of society. And America is no longer a Christian nation. If some of you have illusions or delusions that America is a Christian nation, I want you to understand it is not. It is a post-Christian nation. And the nightmare that I had 10 years ago is now a reality being played out in front of us in television, on our phones, and in the world. And so I want you to hear me at the very beginning before I get too deep in this message is this. The message I have for you this morning is not the lament of some curmudgeon asking and seeking for the return of the good old days, nor is this message a baseball bat coming to beat up every parent and grandparent in this room for horrible parenting. The purpose of this message is a clarion call for our church and the church to wake up before it's too late. This morning, as we go through the book of Judges, or as we look in the book of Judges, we're going to see that the book of Judges is the, if not the, it is one of the most darkest books in the Old Testament. It describes the spiritual condition of a society and a people of God who are in complete rebellion from God. And in chapter 2, as we are going to look at here in a moment, it is essentially the second introduction 
of the, of the book in which the writer gives us a summary of what is going on in the days of the judges, and I believe that it parallels what's going on in 2020. And so if there ever was a time for the church to see what God has to say about generational uh, laziness and what it has to be about at the church reaching the next generation, it is now. As a matter of fact, if there ever was a time for the church to invest in the next generation, it is today. I want you to understand that we are just one generation away from Christianity being extinct on the face of the earth. But the good news is, God's alive. Jesus is on the throne, and there is hope. So let's stand as we read God's Word in Judges chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse number 10 and go through verse 16. Judges chapter 2 and verse number 10. The Scripture says, the Word of God says, And all, the, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers... And there arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord and the the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. You may be seated. What I want you to understand this morning is this. A generation that has no relationship with God and is in complete rebellion against God can only be rescued by God. A generation that has no relationship with God and is in complete rebellion with God and against God can only be saved and only be rescued by God. That's our message this morning, and let's walk through the text and see that. Number one, I want you to see a generation that has no relationship with God. In verses 6 through 10, the, the writer tells us that all the people serve the Lord all the days of Joshua and the elders. The Joshua generation, those who walked in and came in and fought for the promised land, who, who crossed over the river Jordan on dry ground, who saw the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. Those that were with Joshua in that generation followed the Lord. But as you read chapter 1 of the book of Judges, that, that, that generation that was after Joshua and even with Joshua began to slip. As they entered into Israel, as they entered into the land, as they saw the people, the people of God became compromisers. They were cowards and they were complacent. And that led to half-hearted obedience and half-hearted worship. And so as they entered into the land, this promised land, they struggled with the allure of the false gods and the foreign gods of the land, and so they were not able to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. They, in fact, had one foot in the world and another foot with the Lord. They they loved the Lord, but but they also loved their idols. It's an indictment that, that God would later talk about the nation of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 17, 21, in which the Bible says that the people of God worshiped the Lord but served their idols. They, they played hokey pokey. They had one foot in and one foot out. One foot in and one foot out. And what happens is, is that the people who conquered the land were now cowards of the people in the land. 
Because they didn't believe the Lord. They didn't trust the Lord. Here's what I want you to understand. Any failure to believe and any failure to obey is a failure to remember. The root of our disobedience is essentially failing to remember who God is. The people of God started trusting in the false gods because they didn't remember the true God. They had forgotten the gospel. They, they had forgotten that they had been, slave, been slaves in Egypt and had been saved out of that bondage. And here's what I understand in just looking at generational patterns is that one generation typically believes something, the next generation assume something, and the third generation denies and ignores something. And that's what we have here. And so the Bible tells us the, that the effect of partial obedience, the effect of gospel amnesia, forgetting that they were redeemed, forgetting that they were saved, the, the result of half-hearted worship is not so much felt in the current generation, but is felt in the next generation. So that in verse number 10, the Bible says that there arose a generation after them that did not know the Lord nor the work that he had done. It was a lost generation. Now, when we think of this word know, it's not so much about intellectual understanding or factual knowledge. The word here, yada, have you ever watched uh, the episode of Seinfeld where they say yada, yada, yada? Some of you remember that? Maybe some of you don't. Well, the word yada means to know, but it means more than just intellectual knowledge. It means intimate, personal knowledge. So the, the, the next generation maybe knew the stories. They, they knew about the Exodus. They, they knew about crossing over the Jordan River. They, they knew about crossing the Red Sea. But these stories weren't meaningful to them. These stories didn't mean anything to them. They, they weren't moved by them. They were more like old stories told by old people with old faith. They, they weren't life-changing. And see, what we have essentially is that we have one generation of people who saw God knock down the walls of Jericho, and the next generation didn't know that God at all. They didn't have any understanding of what was going on. They, they knew the stories, but they didn't necessarily know the God of the stories. But we have a generation, we have a generation today in America who not only doesn't know God, but they don't even know the stories of God. Just a, a couple, few months ago, I was sharing the gospel. I, I serve as a coach now with Seminole High School football, and, and, and I have an opportunity to share the gospel from time to time. Thank God for that, amen? And I was talking to one of the, the players that was there, and I was sharing the gospel with him, uh, and, and, and just, I thought, man, I'm, I'm doing a really good job here. And, and like, man, I mean, if, if, if I was there, I would get saved listening to myself, you know? And... And, and there I was, I was telling him, and I started with Adam and Eve, and I started with the Garden of Eden, and I started about the fall and sin, and talked about Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead, and if you put your faith and trust in him, you'll be saved. And, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, this guy's going to get saved. I mean, I was so excited. And I never will forget him looking at me and saying, wow, that's cool, but I got a question. Who's Adam and Eve? Now, we say that and you think, no, Pastor, that's, no, it's a true statement. That's what happened. Listen, we have a generation today that's not only ignorant of Bible stories, they're ignorant of the Bible. They don't understand that this is a book that's written by God. They don't understand that these contain the very words of life because we have a generation today that is completely post-Christian. And it's going, listen, it's not going to get any better at the rate we're going. And so here's the problem. Here's the dynamic. Many parents, they are surprised. We had a lot of parents uh, this past couple weeks send their kids to college to get some more knowledge. They put them in their dorms, and it's wonderful. One day, that day is going to come to me, and April and I can't wait. Um, 
that was a joke. Probably with my kids is that they're just going to stay at home and we'll homeschool them in college. Anyway, um, <laughs> but, but these parents, they, they, they raise their kids in the church and then, then, then all of a sudden their, their kids get a little older and, and their kids walk away from God. And, and they'll come and they'll say, Pastor, we raised them in the church. How come we're losing our kids? Why are we losing the next generation? And here's what I want you to understand. We don't lose the kids when they go to college. You know when we're losing kids? It's not in college. We're losing them in high school. We're losing them in middle school. Because many of our young people, maybe some of you young people today, you're like, you were, you, you know, listen, I, when I grew up in church, I was a drug baby. I was drugged to church every Sunday. I mean, I was just brought in there. And maybe some of you are like, man, the only reason I'm here, pastor, is because my parents made me be here. I don't want to be here no more than anybody else does. <laughs> and maybe you've been turned off from Christianity. Well, listen, many people are not turned off when they go to college. They're turned off way before that because what they see, and here's why. And I'm going to get to this. And listen, this is not going to be good for any of us because all of us, it's going to hit us. Well, why is it that we're losing a generation, even a generation of people that are Christian people, that their kids aren't following God? Number one is this. People are far less committed to God than they think. We, you know, some, some of you maybe today, you're here, man, I've served God and I love God. Maybe you're watching online, you say, man, I serve God and I love God. But here's what you, you just have, is that God's not really a priority in your life. He's a part of your life, but he's not a priority of your life. You sporadically are involved in the things of God. You're sporadically involved in, in church. I'm not saying you have to go to church to be a Christian. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian anymore. Being in a garage makes you a car. But going to church is what God has commanded because we need to be around the people of God. But you're not involved in worship. You're not involved in groups. As a matter of fact, for a lot of people, even people that call themselves Christians, it's the beach, it's the ball field, it's the bed that are far more important than the things of God. And we have a generation of kids whose parents never read to them anything from the Word of God, never took time to pray with them. And so everything in the home is a contradiction of what real faith in God looks like. And there are a lot of people that love God and they believe in God, but God's not a priority in their life. And here's the deal, guys. I know this. This is a struggle in my life. I was raised by parents who, listen, kids, I want you to understand, your parents aren't perfect. Your parents are pretty messed up. They, they don't know how to parent. I mean, it's not like when you have a kid that when, when the baby comes out the womb, out the placenta comes out, you just get a book that says, here's how you raise a kid. No. No. It takes trial and error, right? But here's what I want you to understand. Our children will never prioritize what you and I marginalize. And so a lot of people have country music Christianity. They have just enough Jesus to take the wheel every now and again to keep them from riding a long black train. But he's not a priority. And here's the problem, is that mistakes made in one generation are often magnified in the next generation. Albert Moeller, in his book, The Gathering Storm, speaks about what's going on in a, a lot of Christian homes. And here's what he says. He says, many Christian parents have bought into the larger culture's portrait of, a, of the good childhood, complete with incessant sports activities, violin and ballet lessons, and activities perceived to boost a child's eventual college admission application. When it comes to church activities with children and teenagers, the scariest words might well be traveling team. Priorities become clear both on the part of the church and of the parents. Parents can hardly claim shock when their kids grow up and leave what they never really knew. At that point, the opportunity is lost. 
Why is it that we're losing the generations? Because some people who think they're committed to God really aren't that committed at all. And two, is that some parents think that church activity is a substitute for teaching your kids about God. Ken Ham in his book, Already Gone, said this. He said, high levels of church activity do not always predict an increasing love for God and others. Some people think that if I just bring my kids to church and if my kids are in a lot of church activities and if I tell my kids to be good without ever having to personally demonstrate the love of God and how the love of God personally changes my life, but yet all I'm going to do is bring them to church. If that's all your posture is, is to get your kids in so many church activities and in so many things and tell them to be good, what they're going to see when they get home is a hypocrite. And what some parents do, and and listen, we all struggle with this, is that some parents will outsource their responsibility to raise their kids in the love and admiration of the Lord, thinking that that's the church's responsibility. Parents may raise their kids around God, but they may not raise their kids to truly know God. And what happens, and I've seen this, I'm a pastor's kid, is I've seen a lot of people who were raised in the church and their, their parents were at the church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every time the doors were open to the church and what the parents lived, they didn't, expose, they didn't explain why they did it. They just said, this is what we've got to do. And what happened to a lot of the next generation is they saw how the sausage of church was made and they don't want to have anything to do with it. Now, since I'm not getting a lot of amens, that means it's either must be very convicting or very bad. James Emery White, in his book, The Rise of the Nuns, said this. He said, many of those outside of the Christian faith think Christianity no longer represents what Jesus had in mind. That Christianity in our society is no longer what is meant to be. Now, this is what outsiders see as Christians, Christianity. He says that we are seen as hyper-political, out of touch, pushy in our beliefs, and arrogant. Simply put, in the minds of many people, modern-day Christianity no longer seems Christian. And here's the truth. If our Christianity is no different than the world, why would anybody want to become a Christian? So we have a generation who has no relationship with God Now, I'm not going to blame it all on the previous generation, but I'm going to say that there is some probable cause that shows that the reason why the next generation didn't know God is because the previous generation didn't teach them anything about God and show them a changed life with God. But here's the second point. Not only a generation that has no relationship with God, but number two, a generation that is in rebellion from God. So here you have this Joshua generation who knew the Lord, who saw God do mighty deeds, but yet the next generation after them didn't even know the Lord at all. And so the result of that in verse number 11 is that they abandoned the Lord and went after other gods. Since the the next generation had no real relationship with the true God, they turned to the false gods. They turned to the gods among the people. See, in every heart, in every human heart is a God-shaped vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum, and it will be filled, and it must be filled, because people never cease to be religious. Even an atheist is religious, because we are natural-born religious people. We were made to worship. We were made to serve. We were made to see and sense and savor glory. And so, because of that, instead of turning to the true God, we turn to a false God, and that is an idol. Now, let me define to you what an idol is. An idol is anything 
that promises power, freedom, and happiness without God. That's what an idol is. You can define it many different ways, but that's what an idol can be defined. It's anything that promises power, freedom, and happiness without God. And so the gods of the nations were promising purpose. They were promising meaning. They were promising security and identity. And so therefore, the gods of today provide, uh, promise the same thing. If you serve me, if you follow me, you will have meaning, you'll have purpose, and you'll have an identity. And here's what happens. If you and I do not attach our identity to God, we'll attach our identity to something else. And these idols are those things that in our life that we attach ourselves to, that if we ever lost them, life would be unlivable. The idols of our day, the, de the deep idols that, that, that we would find in our day are the idols of power and control, the idols of money, the idols of comfort and sex and fame. All throughout the generations, those have always been the root idols, and they manifest themselves in different ways throughout different generations. So today, the God of the millennials and the God of the Gen Z are this, the pursuit of one personal autonomy. I want to be in control. I want to be in charge. No one should ever tell me what to do. I want my own autonomy. I want to be who I want to be. That's the God of our day. Two is the God of self-expression. Not only do I want to be what I want to be, but I want to find out who I am, and I want to express who I am. And so the great salvation of, our, of the current generation is this. Salvation is no longer going to heaven or going to hell. Salvation in our generation today is finding out who we are and expressing who we are to everyone. And therefore, we want you to celebrate who we are. And if you don't celebrate who I am and who I define myself to be, then you're a bigot. And that's the God of our day, is that we have personal autonomy, I want to be in control, self-expression, consumerism. I want, I want, I want. I can never be fulfilled. But that's how, that's the God of today, is consumerism. The next God of our day is sexual fluidity and sexual freedom. I want to be with whoever I want, however I want, whatever I want. And often that's manifest through social media. I want to be seen. I want to be heard. I want to be loved. I want everyone to know how great I am. Now, there are various different things, and we can go and rail against the gods of our day, but you know what the gods are. You, there, there are things that we can talk about. You can, be talked, you can be tied into money and greed. You can be tied into to all kinds of uh, uh, different things that we put as replacements with God, like sports and other things like that. But here's the result of that idolatry. If you read verses 13 through 15, God essentially says this, I'm going to judge you because you rejected me. You don't want me? You don't want to have anything to do with me? Great, you're not going to get me. See how life works. Just see how what happens. Those things that promise you joy in life, those things that promise you freedom and autonomy are going to enslave you because here's what, the, here's what is true against, uh, about all things when it comes to sin. Sin will promise you everything and deliver you nothing. And what happens is that God says, is that up until this point, I've been with you, I've been for you, but now God says, I'm going to be against you. Because sin always has consequences. The false gods of, of, of the idols of our day promise life, and they promise freedom, and they promise happiness, but they could deliver none of it. Now I'm going to get to meddling. Nothing has been more influential and detrimental to the current generation than their cell phone and social media. Now, I'm involved in social media, and probably 98% of you are as well. It's not that social media is evil. It's, it's a tool. It's neutral. It's that we make it evil. It's like somebody said, you know, all money is evil. And I'm like, oh, really? 
Yeah, it's all evil. I said, well, then give me some. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say money is evil. What does the Bible say? The love of money is the roots of all kind of evil. So social media of itself isn't evil. It's not the devil. But we make it the devil, right? Because we're sinful. And so what social media essentially is, is one's personal highlight reel of one's accomplishments. It's the highlights. Studies show that on average, people aged 13 to 18 spend seven hours and 22 minutes a day on their phones. Now, you think about that. Seven hours. Don't they go to school? What do you think they do in school? They get on their phone. (laughs) Those aged 8 through 12 spend four hours and 12 minutes on their phones. Wow. Now, you think about that. Phones are great. Past 10 years, I mean, I think about the sermon today and the sermon 10 years ago. I didn't know much about iPhones. I remember my first phone. Y'all remember your first phone? I had one of those Zach Morris Saved by the Bell big old honking phones. I never will forget the day that I went from one of those big old honking phones to one of those little bitty Nokia phones that then I saved up and did everything I could to get one of those Razor phones. You remember the Razor phone? And when you had a Razor, you were in style. And I never will forget somebody saying, have you heard of this thing called text messaging? I said, no, that's for idiots. If I want to give a message, I'm not going to take time to type it. I'm going to call you. Now, I talk to more people through text than I do on the phone. I'm such a stinking hypocrite. Now, listen, think about that phone. It's a smartphone. Some of you maybe still have dumb phones. But you think about that smartphone. It has within it the potential and the capacity to do almost anything. It can look at, it can look up, it can do anything, and it is the door that opens to all kinds of unimaginable evil. You know the, 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 the most used app among young people? I learned this. It's YouTube. More kids spend more time on YouTube than any other platform there is, followed by Snapchat, Instagram, and TikTok. But yet, as our kids have had so much given to them through their phone, mental health disorders among young people are at pandemic levels. Teen depression, teen suicide. As a matter of fact, did you know that kids, girls, from the age of 15 to 18, since 2007, the rate of suicide is up 87%. Self-harm, cutting, mutilation is on a rise unlike no, no, no other time in the history of humanity. In a recent article written in The Atlantic, Jean Twinge said this. She said, psychologically, Gen Z, that is people born from 1996 and up, are more vulnerable than millennials ever were. Rates of teen depression and suicide skyrocketed since 2011. It's not an exaggeration to describe Gen Z as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. The twin rise of a smartphone and social media has caused an earthquake of, ma- uh, uh, of a magnitude that we've not seen in a very long time, if ever. There is compelling evidence that devices we've placed in the young people's hands are having profound effects on their lives and making them seriously unhappy. What is it the kids want when they're little? I want a phone. Give me a phone, Dad. I want a phone. Make me happy, Daddy. I want a phone. Make me happy, happy, happy. And we're like, I want to make you happy. Here's a pacifier. It's a $1,000 pacifier, but here you go. 
But what happens is what they think makes them happy is actually what is the root of what makes them unhappy. One former social media influencer who was insta-famous wrote this. She's actually from Australia. She became a gajillionaire, and then it got to the point where she was almost suicidal. Here's what she wrote. She said, social media feeds those darkest parts of every personality, encouraging you to rant on Twitter, brag on Facebook, and be vain on Instagram. Vanity sales on the gram. The hotter the pick, the better it does. So the more time you spend in the mirror creating them, staying insta-famous relies on mining the depths of your own narcissism. But it's also particularly a vicious cycle of fame because it's so insecure. Insta-fame is right at the bottom of the glitter hierarchy widely acknowledged by genuinely famous people as the most fickle and unearned glory. What is it that young people, they're constantly looking for, how can I make myself look hot? How can I make myself look in the best light? And people are giving, advertisers are giving thousands upon thousands of dollars to young people to basically dress very inappropriately. And yet today, the rise of TikTok and Snapchat. Now listen, I'm not berating and berating TikTok because of, of some of the political things today. I'm telling you that TikTok is not bad because China is listening. It's because God is watching. These apps seem extremely innocent. TikTok, Snapchat. Do you realize what Snapchat was made for? It was made so that you could send images or videos to someone and they vanish and disappear and go away forever. Who would want to do that? And why would you ever want to do that? You think about that. But TikTok, these things seem to be very innocent. A lot of people have used it actually as a platform for the gospel. But TikTok, I believe, is one of the most dangerous social media apps along with Snapchat ever invented because it is a gateway drug to many horrible things like pornography, sexual addiction. It is a gateway for sexual predators and sexual trafficking. There is an issue, especially among in Snapchat and in other ways of Instagram, is revenge pornography. That is, young men or young women solicit from other young men and young women images of themselves. And what happens is, is that if they don't continue this up, then they're going to blackmail them and say, I'm going to post that to everybody, and they're going to see who you are. You think, well, that doesn't happen. It happens more than you could ever imagine. It ha I'm telling you. You say, Pastor, why are you preaching this stuff with such veracity? Because, listen, it's killing our kids. It's killing the next generation. And we're seeing here the result of God not being with us, but God being against us because we're setting ourselves up for failure. And here's what I want to say. If you are a student... If you're a young person and you've been caught up in this and you're, you're addicted to pornography and you're addicted to constantly wanting to show the world how awesome you think you are or if you have been the victim of some sort of sexual predator or if you've been the victim of someone's revenge porn against you, here's what I want you to hear. I don't judge you. I love you. This church loves you. And if you need someone to talk to, if you need to come out of the shadows and you feel all this shame and guilt, listen, Jesus Christ can forgive you. He can help you. He can heal you. Listen, the result of no relationship with God and rebellion from God is personal, spiritual, and moral breakdown. The reason why the next generation is the most depressed and suicidal is because in their minds they have no hope. And why do they think they have hope? Because they don't have a relationship with God. And they can't get any satisfaction. 
And so they're looking to social media and they're looking to the mirror and they hate who they are. And then we as parents put expectations upon them that only should be met by God. Oh, I could tell you so much more, but I don't have enough time. The question is, is there any hope? And yes, there is. Let me give you the last point. And the last point now is a warm fuzzy, okay? Now we're going to feel better about ourselves. The indictment against God is that there arose a generation who knew not God and then they completely rebelled against God and God sent punishment to them. But yet in verse 16, the Bible says, then God raised up judges. The word judges there can also be translated to saviors who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. God says, if you disobey me, there's consequences. And God sends those consequences. So God sends plunderers. He sent, he sent in, you know, he sent in people that basically murdered and destroyed and stole. You say, well, God doesn't do that today. Well, what do you think is stealing the soul of, of our kids? Social media. It's stealing the soul of our kids. Politics. Who sent the plunderers? God. Who saved them from the plunderers? God. God sent the judgment, but he also provided the salvation. The God who was angry at sin and rebellion was moved by compassion for sinners. Now, who were the judges? Now, we don't have time to go through the entire book of Judges. Who were the judges? Well, if you read the stories of the different judges, they were ordinary, normal people who were very sinful and very flawed. They were mess-ups. But yet God used them to save that generation from themselves. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. If you're a parent or a grandparent or if you're just a, a, an adult, God uses ordinary flawed people to accomplish his work. I read this this week. I loved it. Broken crayons steal color. Do you know that? Broken, I, and I, I've said that different because I never can say that word right. I call it crowns because I was raised in Kentucky and we called them crowns. So if, if you didn't understand what I said before, broken crowns steal color. If you didn't understand what I said either time, get the tape. Here's what I want you to hear. God loves the next generation more than we do. God loves your kids more than you do. And he has invited our generation and every generation to reach and rescue the next generation from themselves and to point them to him. That's what God's called us to do. You know what your job is? Is to take and reach the next generation. You find this in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless you depart from, the, from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. You therefore shall lay these, th these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and you shall have them in the frontlets between your eyes. Head and hands speaks of, head speaks of how you think, and hand speaks of how you act. You shall keep the words of God in your head and on your hands. And you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your home, and when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And then Ephesians chapter 6, in case you're thinking it's only Old Testament. Ephesians 6, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Oh, so much to be said there. But bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do you realize that if you are a Christian, God brought you out so that you can bring them up and you can put them to Jesus and he can bring them out? 
It is God's will that parents assume the responsibility to teach their children about God, what he has revealed of himself. You say, well, I didn't have parents, or I don't have parents, or nobody taught me. That's why we have discipleship groups. That's why we want you to be involved in the community, because you say, well, no one's ever discipled me. Well, we have tons of people that would love to help disciple you. But I want you to hear me that the most important school a child should ever attend is home. Now, I'm not advocating homeschool. I'm not saying that. I think it's a great way to educate, but it's not the only way to educate your children. But I do think that the most influential theological teachers are mom and dad. So, Pastor, you've given us all this horrible stuff, and you've only got four minutes left, and you've already went long. What can we do? Well, give me some time. How can we invest in the next generation? Here's how. Number one, we must not lecture, but daily live a life of faith before them that points them to God. More than your kids need a lecture, they need you to show them what being in love with Jesus looks like. If all we tell them is to be good and do good and we don't tell them why, we're hypocrites. We need to make it personal. Some of you, you say, I want my kids to love Jesus. Well, if you want them to love Jesus, here's the question you'd ask yourself, do I love Jesus? And it has to be personal. When, when God spoke through Moses to the, to, in, in Deuteronomy, he, he basically says, you have to remember that you were once slaves, but the Lord brought you out. And so when your kids ask you, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? You say, we were once slaves to sin, but Jesus brought me out. And a part of that is being willing to say to your kids, I'm sorry. And being willing to forgive your kids as God through Christ's sake has forgiven you is to link your doctrine with your personal walk with God. The next generation has to see it's real because, listen, they could spot a fake. Second, see, this isn't really that bad. Second, we need to find, fuel, and fund the next generation. And I'm thankful. I feel like that for about seven or eight years ago, I felt like all that people did was talk bad about millennials, which I are one. But here's what I want to say. Rather than fight the next generation and criticize them for their incompetence or their laziness, build relationships with them. Invest in them. Pray for them. You remember the laws that we talked about? You'll reap what you sow, you'll reap greater than you sow, and you'll reap later than you sow. Well, that's the thing when it comes to next-generation ministries. You're not going to see immediate dividends. You're not going to see immediate things at this moment. It's painful, but it's worth it. And so we as a church have to put our resources in reaching the next generation, which I thank God that you do. And one of the ways that we do that is we find young people who are on fire for God and we fan the flame. That's one thing I love about this church you, you, you don't know this. Maybe you do or don't. We have tons of young people. Run about, do you realize that half this church is ran by young people? And that ain't a bad thing. Do you realize you crazy people 10 years ago called a 26-year-old to be your pastor? You're nuts. I wouldn't have hired me back then. I really wouldn't have. I'm like, I'm sitting there thinking about the other day. It's like, 26-year-old. Well, I would even hire myself. No, you guys are crazy, but thank God you were following Jesus, right? Praise God. If we want to see the next generation, we have to show them that faith is real and it shows in my life. Say, we got to find fuel and fund the next generation. Three, 
We have to have an attitude that it's not about me. Listen, if you are saved, say amen. amen. You're the reached. You're the reached. Gen Z is the unreached. There are 74 million Gen Z young people in America today. 74. The largest generation living in America today is Gen Z. And less than 4% of them, less, hear this, less than 4% of them are reached. You sit, you take shoes off later and do the math. They qualify as an unreached people group. And so we have to have the attitude, it's not about me. We don't water down the gospel. We don't water down the doctrines of the things of God. We don't change the gospel. But we may have to change our methods. We may have to change our preferences. We may have to change our styles to reach them. Because it's not about me. There's a lady in our church, and I want to give her a name out. I want to, but I'm not going to. Her name is Jan. <laughs> a few years ago, she says, Pastor, I don't necessarily like the music. I said, okay, you're not alone. <laughs> but I said, she said, I love seeing the young people worship. She said, so I will, I will celebrate and I will sing those songs even though I don't like it. Why? It's not about me. That woman... Jan, and she's watching online, hopefully listening online. She's having problems with her internet. Jan, Jan Shockey, I love you because that's your attitude. Last one is this. Pray for, mentor, and equip the next generation. 30% of Gen Z lives in a single-parent home. Most Gen, Z is, most Gen Z people are looking for a father and a mother that will speak into their lives. They need to hear that even though it may hurt, they need to hear truth. That's why we have kids' ministries. That's why we have student ministries. And listen, we need you. I'm just going to be completely honest with you. Coming out of COVID, we don't know. We've had some volunteers saying, you know, Pastor, it's going to be a while because of, of our preconditioned health conditions that we're just concerned we may not be able to serve in a while. So we have a need. And maybe God's calling you. See, here's what I know. Where God guides, he provides. We have a need in student ministry. We have a need in kids' ministry. And maybe God's calling you right now this morning to be a part of it. You say, well, my kids are involved. Well, you can still be a part of it. We want you to be a part of it. As a matter of fact, at the end of this message, I'm going to encourage you to text in to 407-338-4024 and say, hey, I want to help. Say, I want to help. We need help. You can do it. Now, let's get to the end of this sermon because I went way long. But that's all right. My 10th anniversary. <laughs> it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. In verses 17 through 20, some of you have guessed it the first time people hear is like, I'm never coming back. This guy, all he does is just go nuts. Verses 17 through 23, if you read it, we don't have time, and you're probably thankful that there's a repeated cycle that happens in this book. The people of God rebel against God, God sends them judgment. The people repent, God sends them a judge, a savior to save them. But guess what happens? The judge dies, and then stupid starts all over again. Rinse and repeat. That's the whole cycle of the book of Judges. Because here's what I want you to understand. As good as human saviors are, as good as the, the judges were, they were not enough. They were flawed. They were sinful. They made mistakes. They died. And here's what I want you to understand. Just like any parent or grandparent or program or church or school or government or technique, is flawed, it'll never be enough. Here's what we do. 
Instead of pointing the kids to me or to a church or to a program, we point them to something that can really save them, to the one who can really save them, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the next generation and every generation's only hope. The only thing that you and I can do is to really point our children and our grandchildren and the next generation to Jesus. Because Jesus is the Savior. He is the only Savior who can deliver us from our deepest fears and satisfy our deepest longings. Jesus Christ is the true and better Savior that death could not and cannot defeat. There is nothing that we can do as parents or grandparents that will guarantee our children or grandchildren will be a Christ follower. Don't you wish there were? But there is no guarantee. I know people who love God, genuinely walk with God, and their kids are rotten. Did you know that if you read the book of Judges in Judges 17, Moses' grandson was rotten? Because listen, God has no grandkids. Did you know that? He's just first generation with God. But even though I cannot make my kids fall in love with Jesus, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set them up on as many dates as possible. Let me end with this. As a parent, the biggest fear for our children is that they get hurt. I think the biggest fear is that they die. Some of you have experienced that pain. You've lost your children, and it's not natural. The natural instinct of a parent is to save their kid, right? We would do, I would do anything to save my kid's life. Just a couple weeks ago, there's a tropical storm that came. Remember Isaias? I said, I said it right. I'll never do that again. He missed us, but he went up to New Jersey, went up to New York. This week I saw a story about a huge tree. I think we have a picture that went and fell on a person's house, a guy named Greg Ramirez. And he was at home, and he was with his seven-year-old daughter and his nine-year-old son, and his nine-year-old son was down in the living room with him, and the seven-year-old was in her bedroom upstairs. There were the two kids. And, and Greg Ramirez said that it was 12.30 p.m. in the middle of the day, and he said, suddenly, everything went black, went dark. He ran and got his nine-year-old son, Jaden, out of the house, and he went back into the house to find his seven-year-old daughter, Mia, and he couldn't find her. Did you imagine that? Go back to that picture of that house. you imagine that? Daughter's upstairs, trees in the house. I think there's another picture that maybe shows more devastation. And he walks up, and he tries to go up there, and he's climbing back in, and he can't find his daughter. He gets to his room, and he's looking, and he says, at that moment, I just thought the worst. This fear came into my heart, and he says, I told God, take everything from me. Take my house, take my things, take everything. Just help me find my daughter. And he said that just a second later, his little hand reached out. And Mia took his hand, and he pulled her out, and they were safe. There's a picture, if you'll see, of the family again. There they were. They're safe and sound. Now, in that moment... The dad did whatever he could to protect his daughter. You know, any parent would do that, right? It's a loving parent. They would 
they, they, they would run into a burning building. They would jump into a frozen pond. They would stay in the house that's falling down. They would give their lives to save their kids because that's what good and loving parents do. Here's what I want to say. If we will do that, if we will run into a burning building and jump into a frozen pond and go into a house that's falling down to save our kids from physical danger, why wouldn't we do whatever it takes to save them from a greater spiritual danger? You say, Pastor, I've blown it. My kids have grown up. My kids are too far gone. Here's what I want to say, as I said earlier. As long as God's on the throne and Jesus still saves, there's hope. And listen, you can't save your kids anyway. Only Jesus can do that. But let us as a church do everything we can to point our kids to Him. And here's what I want to say as I end. I know I've said that like four times. I mean it this time. If you are here and you're a young person or you're just a mom or a dad and you're struggling with depression, you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, if you've been sexually abused or physically abused or you're addicted to pornography, there is hope. And we will not judge you. We will not tell things about you. We want to love you and we want to help you. So here's what I want you to do. I want everyone to do this. If you're here and you're going through that, I want to put the text number on here. And just sometime later today, just write this text number down. And just text into that number. Put your name and say, I need some help. Maybe you're watching online and you say, Pastor, I need some help. We want to be there for you. Just, just in the past two or three weeks, we have, this is what we've been doing. I think COVID's uncovering it. Here's what I want to end. I went really long, but I feel like God's moving. I hope you feel He is too. He's moving in my heart. And I don't know about you, but right now I need to pray. Do you all need to pray? Maybe you're online you say, Pastor, I need to pray too. So here's what I want us to do. I want us, if you're here and you're around your family, just because of COVID, we can't mingle around. Don't mingle around. But if you're here with a, your children or your wife or family member, I just want you to maybe to just pray together. So here's what I want to do. I want everybody to stand. This may be awkward for some, but just gather around the people around you. And you say, well, I, I'm, not, I'm here by myself. Well, you just sit and pray where you are. But just gather around the people around you. If you're a parent in the room and your kids are with you, I want you to pray over them. If you're a grandparent in the room and your grandkids are in the room, pray over them. If your kids are in the room, pray over them. You say, well, we're sitting somewhere else. Well, go find them. We want to stay socially distanced, but I just feel really strongly that we need to pray. So I'm just going to give you that time right now. And here's what I want you to do. You say, Pastor, this is weird. I've never done this before. I want you to pray out loud over your kids. I want them to hear it. I want you to pray out loud over your wife or over your husband. So right now, you just do that. You just pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for what you're doing in this room. God, we cannot manufacture this. We need your spirit. God, if we've ever needed your spirit and ever needed you, ever needed you in our country, ever needed you in our homes, ever needed you in our lives, it's now, Lord. God, I thank you for what you're doing in this church. And I pray, God, that everyone in this room, it's a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa, would find their hope in you, God. That, Lord, as, as it's so easy to spend so much time thinking about all the evil, God, help us to look to you that's good. But, Lord, as, as the message today serves as a sober warning that it's time for our church to wake up, it's time for the church to wake up and to do whatever we can to reach the next generation for Jesus. But God, I know in this room there are broken lives, there are broken people, there are marriages that are crumbling, there are parents that are at their wit's end, there are young people that are scared, that are ashamed, that are, that are feeling just so guilty, and some of them depressed. Some of them are scared to go even home today. Lord, I pray that you would give them a holy boldness to reach out towards you, but also to those in our church that can help them. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.